listeners of Dying to Be Found. If you're fans of Deb and Beth like we are, we hope that you'll give us a try. We like them a lot and we hope that you'll like us too. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we, we are True Crime b and We do a podcast every week. We release on Fridays. And every week we'll bring to you two different true crime stories. First we'll bring you a disturbing story. And then one that will hopefully uplift your spirits a little bit. We'd love to have you listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah, so join us every week on Friday. Find us anywhere you find your podcasts on Spotify, Apple, Google Podcasts, I don't know anywhere else. (laughs) (laughs) And also you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime BNB. Did we even mention that we're mom and daughter? No. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you join our crime family. Bye. Bye. Hi, everyone. This is Deb from Dying to be Found. Before we get started, I just wanted to say that episodes contain disturbing discussions on harmful acts and crimes against animals and or humankind. Recordings are not intended for young or sensitive audiences due to the content nature of this podcast. Listener discretion is strongly advised. This is Deb. And this is Beth. And we wanted to welcome you to episode number 14 of Dying to be Found, where we deliver stories that we feel that our listeners can relate to. If you have a story that you would like for us to cover, please visit us at dyingtobefound.com, just like you see on our logo, or you can email us at dyingtobefound at gmail.com, and that's dying, the number two, the letter B, found at gmail.com. Today we're going to be talking about Dorothy Jane Scott, who's a 32-year-old single mother that went missing in 1980. But before we do that, Beth, how are you doing today? Awesome, awesome, awesome. I just never know how to respond to that because, I mean, my days are pretty awesome, but anything going on that you want to talk about? Not really. Just had a week's vacation and, and enjoyed that. Now I'm raring to go. Good deal. I'll be on vacation in another week myself, so. Hey, Beth, before we get started, I had a question for you. Go ahead. Do you know how many podcasts are out there? Well, I was scrolling through them recently, and it looks like a heck of a lot. Take a guess. Give me a number. 10,000? Nope. 750,000 podcasts to choose from. Oh, my gosh. And our listeners are choosing us. They are. So with me saying that, I will also tell you, I came across a really good podcast. If you noticed at the entrance of our episode today, we have found a really good mother-daughter duo. This podcast is called True Crime B&B. So I want to just say hi to Beth and Bailey. We appreciate partnering with you. We appreciate being a part of the True Crime family. So if you guys get a chance to listen, Hi, ladies. Okay, so let's turn to our story on Dorothy Jane Scott. And this is basically a story about an unsolved murder. Unsolved murders leave everyone on edge and there's no closure for loved ones. And the perpetrator is living basically in freedom. They get to walk around just like you and I. 
and they can get away with crimes for years. Just some statistics that Beth actually found for me. Thanks, Beth. In 2019, out of the 15,000 plus murders in the United States, there are over 6,500 cases that are never solved. So today's story is about one of these cases. And as we get started, we're going to go all the way back to 1980 when this crime first happened. There was a lot less awareness of stalking and how it can escalate leading up to murder. With today, there is so much more research and understanding of stalkers and we have laws in place now that we've never had before. But we know that stalking situations can certainly escalate to murder, which we will soon see in this case. So back in 1980, when this crime happened, let's start with Dorothy Jean Scott. She was born on April 23rd, 1948 in Anaheim, California to Vera and Jacob Scott. At the time of her disappearance, Dorothy was a 32-year-old single mother of a four-year-old boy named Sean. And to make ends meet, Dorothy and Sean lived with their aunt in Stanton, California. Dorothy worked two jobs as a secretary at Custom John's head shop, as well as Swinger's psych shop. In the day, Custom John's sold psychedelic items such as lava lamps and beads. And for those of you who don't know what a head shop is, basically it's what we would know today as a, a vape shop in today's industry. Beth, do you have a lot of vape shops around you? No. Have you ever heard of one? No. Oh, interesting. No, they're everywhere around here. It's basically where you can go in and get, do you know what vaping is? Yes. Okay. So yeah, that's where you go get your supplies. And I would probably compare today's vape shop to head shops back in the day. Now, Dorothy also held a second job in town and worked about five miles or eight kilometers from her home. Dorothy, in my opinion, would be given a five-star rating as a mother because she was not a drinker. She didn't do drugs. She was quiet and considered somewhat of a homebody. She kept a small circle of friends, and I know what that's like. It's probably better that way, to be honest with you. And and she was considered a Christian who went to church pretty regularly. So she was just an average American girl doing the best she could to raise her son. And she just decided that spending time to herself was probably the best thing to do. Now, she didn't date very often, nor did she have a steady boyfriend in her life when she disappeared. So it sounds to me like she really put all of her efforts into raising her son. She sounds like a real sweetheart. Mm-hmm. So Dorothy's parents would often babysit Sean while Dorothy was at work because Sean's dad did not live locally. And it was just basically Dorothy and her family there in that area. Now, back in the early 80s, Dorothy began receiving anonymous phone calls at work from an unknown male caller who kept professing his love to her. Now, these calls continued for months and Dorothy had told others that I'm going to call him a creeper. This creeper's voice sounded really familiar. She just couldn't make out who it might be. And during these calls, this guy would describe Dorothy's routine for the day and what she was wearing. Now, I would be absolutely petrified knowing that this guy knows exactly what I'm wearing today. That's because... He's got to be like within range. He's got to have his sights on her or is he using binoculars? I'm not sure. I think I'd be so nervous I'd already be going to the police. 
Uh-huh. Well, Dorothy did. She contacted the police. And since the calls were so frequent, they took extreme measures and installed an early voice recorder on Dorothy's home phone. Now, for our listeners, especially for our millennials who might be listening, back in the day, in the 1980s, we didn't have those cell phones yet. And we all had those landlines that were hooked up to the wall. Sometimes you get a nice long coil where you might be able to go within, I don't know, six feet of the wall. Or you basically had to stay put in one area and talk on the phone. So they did install a voice recorder on that phone line. And, um, you know, there was not a lot of surveillance that we could be picking up on to help us with that. Surveillance was probably more or less kept with the police department or or people like that. It just wasn't well known to have a lot of surveillance back at the time. Like everybody's got door cameras today. They didn't have any of that back then. So when this guy called Dorothy, some days he would profess his love for her. And on other days, he would just basically start into how he was going to get Dorothy alone and chop her into little bits so that no one would ever be able to find her. That, that is certainly terrifying. That's awful. Absolutely. During his calls, the man always warned Dorothy that he was watching her. I believe that. I mean, he, he just seems like he was always just within reach, you know? Mm-hmm. And one day he told her that she was special and that she should go outside because he left a present for her. I don't think I would go outside. Do you? No, not at all. Mm-mm. I'm sure that he would be out there ready to jump. Yeah, that's when I would definitely be calling the police again. I mean, in my research, she didn't say how often she was calling the police, but in this instance, she did go outside after his words where he said, I left you something. Just go outside and see. No, I wouldn't do that. I would not go outside. But when she did go to investigate, she found a single dead rose on the hood of her car. No. That's terrifying. That is straight from a horror movie terrifying to me. That is very terrifying. Well, this incident prompted Dorothy to take necessary steps to protect herself. She did consider purchasing a handgun, and just one week before her disappearance, she did begin taking martial arts classes for self-defense. Have you ever done self-defense, Beth? Yeah, we were taught that uh, first year of high school. I remember a lot of it so that I'm prepared as best as I can be if anything happened. Mm-hmm. I did take a, a handgun course at one point in time. We used a wooden handgun for training purposes, but in this day and age, you just can't be too careful. Now, on May 28th of 1980, Dorothy ended up staying a little bit longer at work because she had to attend a staff meeting. During this meeting, one of her co-workers named Conrad Bostron, he was not feeling very well. And when Dorothy was talking with him, she found out that he had something on his arm. It was very swollen. It was red. It, it didn't look natural. So Dorothy, along 
along with another co-worker named Pam Head, decided that they were going to take Conrad to the emergency room because she's such a nice person. Again, she's just going to work every day. She seems to have really good relationships with people. And so being the good person that she is, she went ahead and decided to, that she was going to drive Conrad over to the emergency room. And after dropping Conrad and Pam off at the University of California, Irvine Medical Center, Dorothy drove home just to check on Sean, who was staying over at her parents. Now, remember, I told you that when she went to work, her parents usually did the babysitting. So she went ahead and checked on him. And during this stop, Dorothy changed out of one of her scarves that she was wearing. It was a light black scarf that you would usually wear during the day. But as the temperatures go down in the evenings, she changed into a heavier red one that she felt would keep her warmer in the, in the cooling temperatures. So this little fact about her scarf will come up a little bit later. Dorothy drove back to the hospital to join Pam in the waiting room while they waited for Conrad to be treated. And as it turned out, he had been bitten by a black widow spider. Beth, have you ever been face to face with a black widow spider? No, have you? Oh gosh, yes. When I lived in that house that I lived in for decades, um, we always used to get black widow spiders on the front porch. Oh, you mean the daddy long legs? Oh no, no, no. That's a different kind of spider. I think daddy long legs are one of the most poisonous spiders in the world, but because their mouth is so small, they can't bite you. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I don't bother with them. Actually, I see them from time to time in my house and I just look at them. They look at me and I keep going because eventually they just they disappear. I get a Kleenex when I see one. If I was, if he is around, I'll point to it so he gets it. Oh, but you know they're good for eating other little bugs, right? I guess, but not for me. No shared space. Do you know, though, that you are always within seven feet of a spider? Oh, don't tell me that. True story. So you'll be looking around the corner now, won't you? Oh, yes. Okay. Well, once Conrad was treated and discharged from the hospital at somewhere around 11 p.m., Pam took Conrad to the hospital pharmacy while Dorothy decided to go out to her car and just swing around the hospital entrance to pick up both of her friends because she really didn't want Conrad taking that long walk back to her car in his condition. Because remember, I told you he really wasn't feeling well. I will say I had a girlfriend quite a long time ago who ended up in the emergency room with a, I think she got bit by a black widow spider. And I know she said that she was, she, she'd never been sicker in her life. Anytime you, maybe you're putting on a blouse or pants and you feel just like a little stick. Mm -hmm. That's what it felt like. And then within 24 hours, she was really not feeling well. Okay. Now the trip to this pharmacy only took about five minutes and Conrad and Pam made it to the hospital entrance before Dorothy did. So they continued to wait there for just a little while while Dorothy did not show up. So they began walking where she had originally parked the car when they first got to the hospital. I guess I have a question here. She dropped the 
two off at the hospital before she went to go home to check on Sean. So I'm curious to know how they knew where she was parked. This might be one of those conflicting stories about at what point in time she went home to change her scarf. Right. Well, Conrad and Pam started walking through the parking lot and they both did see Dorothy's car driving towards them quite erratically. And as the car was approaching, both of them began waving their arms at her or at least who they thought was her. But whoever was driving had the bright headlights on and this blinded Conrad and Pam. So neither of them were ever able to really see who was behind the wheel. Now, as that car got closer, it veered off and sped away, leaving both Conrad and Pam just standing there. What you know, wondering what the heck was going on. They ended up going back into the hospital to wait for Dorothy just for a few more hours because remember, back in the day, we didn't have cell phones. So they thought, well, maybe something's going on with Sean. We'll just wait here for a while. Well, after a couple hours, when she didn't show up, they ended up contacting Dorothy's parents. This was around the time that they discovered that Dorothy had never come home at all. So... A missing persons report was filed, but at this point in time, Dorothy was never seen again. That's very sad. Poor Sean. Yes, poor Sean. Now, talking about the police investigation, a couple things occurred while they began looking into Dorothy's disappearance. Just as any other missing persons case, Dorothy's parents were told to wait a few days because Dorothy was an adult and she would eventually show up. Beth, I have a problem with that. Why? I understand that this is pretty typical for police officers to say, oh, just wait 24 hours because they'll eventually show up. She's an adult. But come on now, a couple things. Dorothy had a son that she clearly just went home and checked on a couple hours earlier. Exactly. The second thing is just from the fact that how the car exited the parking lot very erratically, isn't that in itself a little suspicious? Very, a big, very suspicious. Yeah, so I don't know why they would have waited a few days to even start investigating. As they continued, the Scots were asked to keep all details of Dorothy's disappearance out of the media because it was common to do this in the beginning of any missing persons case or any crime because we know typically whatever's kept close to the chest, a lot of the times suspects will reveal something during an interview and that's when the police officers are able to get a confession. That's kind of how that goes. I mean, that's pretty well known on a process. Now, on May 29th at around 4.30 in the morning, this was just the very next day, Dorothy's white 1973 Toyota station wagon was discovered fully engulfed in flames, burning in an alley somewhere around 10 miles away or 16 kilometers away from the hospital where she had taken Conrad for his treatment for that spider bite. Now that is proof in the pudding that she is missing and I hope the cops get on the case pretty quick. Mm -hmm. About a week later, this mysterious caller began calling Dorothy's house again. Only he was starting to target Dorothy's mother, Vera. And he was very, very specific about making these phone calls with her. During the first call, the creeper, let's call him a creeper, 
asked if Vera was related to Dorothy Scott. So when she said yes, this caller simply stated, I've got her and hung up. Now, every Wednesday following that phone call, this caller would continue to call Dorothy's mother, making sure that he told her that he was the one that had Dorothy. And he was also very careful to call Vera when he knew that she would be the only one at home taking these calls so that he could thoroughly taunt her without interruption. So Beth, I'm thinking about this and how far away from the house is he right now? Because if he knew that she was the only one home, I don't know if this was the same time every day, but he, he, definitely knew that she was going to be the only one there to take these phone calls. Mm-hmm. I don't know why this is still unsolved. You would think by now or by then even they would know who it is. Yeah. Well, let me tell you why they don't. Okay. Because he made sure that all of these phone calls were very brief so that the calls could not be traced. Again, for those listeners who are not really clear and you're probably wondering the same thing that Beth was just asking about, you have got to keep somebody on the phone long enough to be able to trace that call call and know where that caller is at. So if he knew that he only had so much time to stay on that line before he had to disconnect, then he was always very careful to make sure that he he hung up and, and no one was able to get that call. During the calls, though, he would just laugh and he'd say, yeah, I killed Dorothy. Oh, and by the way, I tortured her too. And also on other calls, he just basically told her, told Dorothy's mother that she was being held captive captive somewhere and was never really specific because that call would hang up a lot quicker than Vera was able to get the information from. Yeah, poor Vera. That would be like a, a living a hell every day. Oh gosh, yes. Yes, it would. So that was happening in the middle of the year of 1980. So it had gone for just a while because Dorothy disappeared on May 28th. It was during one of these phone calls that this creeper had made to the house where Jacob, Dorothy's dad, picked up the phone during one of these phone calls. As soon as the caller heard his voice, he just mumbled something like, oh, I've got the wrong number and immediately hung up. Now, here's a food for thought on that. Do you remember at the beginning of this story when I mentioned that Dorothy seemed like she may have recognized the voice, but she just couldn't put a name to it? Right. Well, what do you think if possibly this was someone that the family knew? Because remember now that the caller only contacted Scott's home when Jacob was not there. Do you think maybe that if Jacob started talking to this guy, he may have recognized the caller's voice? That was my first impression. So it, it could be a friend of the family. Mm-hmm. Well, Vera and Jacob contacted the police and the calls did continue. But of course, the police had begun their investigation. And again, at this point, they still told them not to contact the news media. But guess what? 
they did. And I'm glad they did because at this point in time, Dorothy's been missing entirely too long. And even though the police may think that it might not be a good idea, if nothing's getting done, I think I would probably do the same thing. Exactly. I would too. Mm-hmm. Well, Dorothy's parents ended up contacting the Orange County Register, which is a local newspaper in Santa Ana, when they felt that nothing else was being accomplished to locate Dorothy. So the register soon ran a story on Dorothy's disappearance and even offered a $2,500 award for any information on Dorothy's whereabouts. Somewhere in the middle of June, I got a couple conflicting dates, so I'll just say mid-June of 1980. This creeper also called the newspaper. He called the Orange County Register newspaper editor by the name of Pat Riley and pretty much told him that he had killed Dorothy because she had cheated on him. He stated, I killed her. I killed Dorothy Scott. She was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She denied having anyone else, so I killed her. And he was actually crying in in the middle of this conversation and after he said all that he just basically hung up here's my thoughts on that i wonder beth because he was always within sights of dorothy because he was stalking her do you think that the night that dorothy took conrad to the hospital and saw dorothy with him do you think that set him off i mean that seems to be the trigger point right i had never thought of that but i bet you well, he ended up providing Pat with accurate details, including Dorothy being at the hospital, what she was wearing the night that she disappeared, including that red scarf that I had mentioned earlier, where she had changed from the light black one to a heavier red one for the evenings. So he had that information, and that would be the, the information I believe that was held close to the police department's chest was basically that information that was not put out on the news. But neither of these details were disclosed to the public or in that newspaper article that was written up on Dorothy's disappearance. The caller at the time also claimed that Dorothy had phoned him from the hospital that night. Pam, however, adamantly denied this, saying that she was with Dorothy the entire night and had never made any calls. Now, I will say this. I feel like I saw an article somewhere where as they were about to go to leave the hospital, just before Dorothy went out into the parking lot to bring her car around, I feel like when Pam and Conrad went to the pharmacy that Dorothy made a pit stop to the restroom and they may or may not have had a phone booth right there you know, in hospitals, I don't know if they still have phone booths in the hospitals these days, but you know how you would always see phone booths in different buildings. Yes, exactly. There is no evidence that she has made any phone calls in this case that I could find. But I did see that she had separated from them momentarily just to stop and use the restroom before she went outside. Investigators believe that the anonymous caller was the one responsible for Scott's death simply because he had all that information that was not disclosed to the public when Dorothy went missing. And due to the phone line system in the 1980s, police were never able to trace those calls because that caller would never stay on that phone long enough to discover where the calls were coming from. One of the things that I was thinking as uh, you were talking to us was the fact that maybe it was her dad. You think Jacob did this? 
how could he know the changing of the scarves just every detail he is it's like this person is on top of the household he's right there to see everything and know everything but he was he picked up the phone one night yes that's what he says oh wow there's a spin i've never thought about i didn't either until uh we were listening well i will tell you that the police did look at two suspects in Dorothy's disappearance. And the first one, his name was Mike Butler, and he worked as a mechanic just across the street from one of the shops where Dorothy worked. And at some point even developed a small obsession with her. Now, I couldn't really find in the articles that I was reading very much information on Mike and how his obsessive behaviors were towards her but Mike's sister also worked at the same shop as Dorothy when she disappeared and he was considered a loner a little strange a little unstable and get this Beth he lived as a recluse up in the mountains we just finished a story on that that type of personality remember yes with the mad trapper exactly yeah yeah so at some point Mike was also considered to be part of an occult which is, if you were to describe that, what is that more like a, I wouldn't call it witchcraft, but is it considered devil worshipping? Well, it's sort of like a gang. Yeah. Who, as you said, devil worshipped. Yeah. So he was considered to be part of that, but more people than not pretty much thought that Mike was being considered a scapegoat because his behaviors were a little odd and because he had some different beliefs from the social norms. In a nutshell, though, nothing really became of it and he was never really considered a strong suspect in this case. What bothers me about this kind of thing when somebody's being used as a scapegoat or the police decide that they're going to interview somebody for 10 hours and wait for them to pressure them into into confession because that is leaving the true criminal out there when they could be looking for them. Yes, that is such a valuable waste of time, isn't it? It is. And I see this on movies all the time and it just burns my butt. Chaps your butt, eh? <laughs> hey, listen, I'm glad you said that because in one of our uh, episodes coming up, I'm actually going to talk a little bit more about that when when suspects are being interviewed or interrogated and I'll have a little bit more to say on that. I don't really want to add that to this right now just because, you know, Mike could easily be a scapegoat here, but I fully understand what you're saying because I know it's got to be draining on them. And then when suspects are pinpointed and let's just say the police just have that idea that this person is the one that did it. I've just, too, I've seen so many stories of how many times these people are being interrogated for hours and no sleep. And a lot of people get false confessions because all they want to do at this point is just get out of there. Mm-hmm. That's the only way they know how is just to, here, give me the paper. I'll sign it. I need to get out of this room because that's a lot of pressure. It is. Yeah. Now, the second suspect on the police department list was Dennis Terry, who was the father of Dorothy's son, Sean. 
Sean's dad lived somewhere around 2,000 miles away in Missouri at the time that Dorothy's disappearance occurred. So he never really played an active role as a parent or in this disappearance. After Sean was born, he was not really in the picture. So he was also ruled out pretty quickly as a suspect and nothing came from either one of these investigations with Mike Butler nor Dennis Terry. Other reports say that Dorothy's son, Sean, eventually looked into his mother's disappearance, which did lead to an unnamed suspect. However, this suspect died of cancer in 2014, so nothing really came of it and nothing was pursued. If she disappeared in 80 and Sean was only six, Sean would have been a full-fledged adult at this time when he started investigating. I'm very sorry for him because, of course, if there's no closure, there's always that question on who done it. Yes. All right, so on August 6th of 1984, four years after her disappearance, Dorothy's remains were actually discovered on a construction site. A subcontractor with Pacific Bell was laying lines along Santa Ana Canyon Road when he stumbled upon human remains. Police were able to identify the remains as Dorothy Scott and estimated that she was placed in that area approximately two years beforehand. Her skull two thigh bones and pelvis bones were recovered but were partially burnt. This is where their timeline came in because just two years before in October of 1982 there was a brush fire in that area and so they knew that Dorothy had to be in that area since at least October of 82 when that occurred. Due to the deteriorating conditions of Dorothy's remains they were never able to determine her cause of death. And there was also one more thing that they found at that site along with Dorothy. At this same scene, the subcontractor found a dog's skeleton and it was discovered laying on top of Dorothy, like literally on top of her. Hmm. Weird. Mm-hmm. There was speculation of a suspect associated with where Dorothy had worked, but this person was later cleared of any wrongdoing. I wonder now if that was Mike Butler because of the description that I had just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Some suggested that it was a cult connection, kind of like we had just mentioned a little while ago. But again, none of that was ever found to be true. There was also a turquoise ring along with a watch that they discovered amongst Dorothy's remains. And her mother, Vera, later identified these belonging to Dorothy and noted that the watch had stopped on May 29th at 12.32 a.m. This was only one hour after Dorothy's car was seen driving away from the hospital by her friends Conrad and Pam. Holy cow! One hour. See, that's where I'm thinking if the caller called the newspaper and was crying and saying she was cheating on me, but she denied it. At this point in time, all I can think of is this guy was seeing, he was seeing red and he was just going on full-fledged 100% emotion. He had to have been enraged so much so that that occurred so quickly. Well, 
Dorothy's remains were positively identified through her dental records on August 14th of 1984. And it seems like at this point in time, it revived the creeper caller's obsession with Dorothy because Beth, get this, after Dorothy's remains were discovered, he called her house again, not once, but two more times. He's really deranged. Mm-hmm. Well, the police had installed voice recorders, but the caller spoke very briefly on the phone so that nobody could trace those calls. And all he would say is, is Dorothy home? And then he would just simply hang up. And after those two phone calls, he never called again. On August 22nd of 1984, eight days after her remains were identified, Dorothy's family held a memorial in her name. Now, sadly, Jacob did pass away on April 23rd of 1994 on what would have been Dorothy's 46th birthday. He never found out what happened to his daughter. Vera died in 2002, also with not knowing who this killer was. Dorothy's son, Sean, like I had mentioned, kind of looked into the background of this, but again, he's he's living without really knowing what happened and, and why this would have happened. And so far, the stalker who terrorized Dorothy Scott and her family is still out there today. This is a case that I would like to see on Unsolved Mysteries. Is that still going on? No, there's actually Walsh. Yeah, oh. Adam Walsh's dad. John Walsh. Yes, John Walsh has a show that I watch, and that would be great if something like this case could get on there, because I'm very sad about this whole case. And that's why I've been pretty quiet throughout Deb's report, because it just is so, so sad. Yes, it is. It's sad for everybody here. The family members, Sean and poor Dorothy. And she was taking the measures to maintain her own safety. Now, I will tell you, I did find a couple resources so that our listeners can take safety measures against stalking, because if you've ever been stalked or if you know somebody who has been or is being stalked, you can go to victimsofcrime.org. There's also more information on missing persons, such as the National Center for Missing Adults. You can visit their website at victimsofcrime.org. And this is a subsidiary of the Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is found at missingkids.org. Now, one more site that I found for missing persons is the National Center for Missing Endangered adults. You can also visit volunteermatch.org for more information there. That is what we've got for Dorothy Jane Scott. Yeah, hopefully Sean will find some closure to this and that would be hopefully covered with a show like John Walsh has. I haven't seen any of his shows lately, but he is such an advocate for crime stopping and things like that. So that would definitely be a, a good case to cover like you said, Beth. Anything else to add? Not really. Teachable moment. That was a teachable moment, but you didn't announce it as one. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for listening to our little podcast called Dying to be Found. 
And before we go, we would love for you to leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. If you like our show, consider buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash dying to be found, spelled just like you see it on our logo. Feel free to leave a comment in the page so that we know if we're doing well, what we can do better. And be sure to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Pinterest at dying, the number two, the letter B found. And we will talk to you next Thursday. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap. Thank you.